0: Ross and Deborah Provost-Jones, ladies and gentlemen. It's a very real pleasure to be here and to be sharing with you around God's Word today. And we're going to read from the Bible as uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to turn to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to read a short reading from Matthew's Gospel in chapter 7. Just as you're turning there. Georgie Forrest has congratulated me in being here and she says, well, we make it to the 200th and uh, I hope so, Georgie, um, but uh, it's a very real joy to be back here and to be uh, with you today and to be here in the sense of everything that is the joy of today and the wonder of God's grace and God's mercy to you and to us together as people. So, let's read together just a short part of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 12, 18. If I could have the slides on now, that would be good. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it but small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray for the blessing of your Spirit upon our listening and upon our hearing, and open us again, we pray, to the mercy and grace of your goodness and your love. For this we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Just a few weeks ago, um, this person passed on from the land of the dying to the land of the living. His name was Eugene Peterson. And in his passing, for many people who are involved in Christian ministry, uh, we celebrated the well done of a life that was given in the gift of our mind that became for the church and the world a wonderful uh, offering of how to be a Christian and also how to be a Christian minister. If you have a copy of his uh, paraphrase of the Bible, you have a copy of the message, and Eugene Peterson will be forever remembered for the message, not just of his life, but also of his humility. The beauty about this picture is that inside that smile, inside that beard, inside every fold in his face is the seasoned experience what it means to go all the way to the end and be faithful. The experience of 2018 saw also, didn't it, one of the most famous Baptists in the world come to the end of his experience also in his hundredth year. Billy Graham comes to the end of what was a race run well, and in the joy of everything that was Graham's life, the similarity to Peterson was this whole sense of two people who lived through a period of life and of living of human history, and who together held some of the most exclusive truths that the Bible ever could give or bear witness to. Peterson and Graham are joined together by the fact that they pastor and lead and preach in the context of a world that was fast-changing, people who see in the experience of their lives much of what many of the mature church here today have experienced in your own life. And the passing of both of these servants in the life of God's world church brings me to this whole experience of how we who continue hold together the unique and exclusive truths of the Christian gospel In the setting of a world that wants to press us and push us into a mold whereby we become inept, we become people who are religious, and we become people who are so unlike those people in the setting of the Bible that we meet in the New Testament—believers. A Baptist church is made up of people who don't come to church because it's a good thing to do. A Baptist church should be made up of some of the biggest rogues in the community, In fact, I can see that some of you are still here. A Baptist church is made up of people who are exclusive truth kind of people, and it's the exploration of that exclusive truth today that should, I think, give us an insight as to how, when in the great year of disruption in the uh, 19th century, when this church began its work, the sense of a congregation in Graham Street that was a Christ-centered congregation, what inspired them? And what might today inspire us with some of the very slim and slender unique truths that we find in the Bible? Well, it's in the setting of the slide that should be up now, but it's not going, uh, we see something of that experience of what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. There is in this moment of Jesus' wonderful sermon, a sermon that even if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you know about the Sermon on the Mount because it contains some of the most wonderful and ethical and moral things that the New Testament would teach. But into this particular moment in the setting of the text comes an unusual moment when Jesus, in the setting of teaching, begins to talk about the uniqueness and the exclusiveness of the message that he's about to live out over the three years of his earthly life. And he says in those words in Matthew seven thirteen, enter through the narrow gate. Listen to how Eugene Peterson puts it. Don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff. Even though the crowds of people do, the way to life to God is vigorous, and it requires your total attention. Let me just put this right out there. A Baptist church is made up of people who accept for themselves the exclusive truths of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and who in our acceptance of His exclusive truths bear witness to the good news of the gospel by being baptized not as infants, but as believers. And when we say and stand at the top of the baptistry here, Jesus Christ is Lord, we are saying that Theresa May is not Lord. We are saying that the Queen is not Lord. We are saying that the boss in your factory or in your office is not King or Lord. And the most radical thing about being baptized as a believer is this, in this day and age, You say that you are not Lord. You say that you are a person in whom God has come to live. And therefore, the life that you now live is the life of faith. You see, that's what I think Jesus is doing in this moment in the Sermon on the Mount when he presents to the disciples that what he is about to live and be and do is rather unique and exclusive. One of the things about this text in the setting of the Bible is that it's what I call a turnstile text. It's one of these texts that forces everybody as you read it to have to press through its meaning on your own. It's not a text that you can just read in the context of the Bible and think, Uh, the narrowness of the road and what that might mean, and then the mention of destruction and difficulty, the sense of what Gordon talked about when mentioning John and the experience of someone who was not a Christian, but who, when he came to church, he had a sense that this congregation's message was somewhat different from the other congregations where everybody at one time got in. And the turnstile element of this text is that it imposes itself on you in the way that a turnstile does. I went for a swim this morning, and I had to push myself through the turnstile, and the turnstile makes you aware of its presence. This particular text makes you aware of its presence in the teaching of Jesus, and why might that be the case? Well, let's just stick with this just for a few moments. You see, Jesus is saying that the life of faith begins with a volition, a volitional choice. What do I mean? Well, I mean that no one is born a Christian. No one ends up following Jesus by accident. The whole sense of the turnstiles this morning at the pool was that you have to position yourself to go through them. The life of faith begins with you positioning yourself to come to Jesus, to come to the person of Jesus and move yourself in and through His life, His sayings, His meaning, His death, and His resurrection. Now, inside this particular part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is projecting forward into the message of the gospel, the reality, that there are two choices that face people when it comes to the whole question about God. And for Judaism and Jewish disciples who Jesus is talking to, the whole experience in this particular moment is, look, There's a uniqueness to what I'm about to tell you, and there will be a uniqueness to my message. The beauty of all that are the discourses in John's gospel from 15 through to 17 is Jesus preparing them and us for that unique journey called Christian discipleship. But hear this and hear it very clearly today. Jesus is saying there are two ways. There is a wide gate, and on that gate, everybody moves through, and on that road is a densely populated highway of life and of living of people who put themselves on it. And that sense of the broad road, Jesus says, is their way of destruction. However, He comes back to this whole other contrast gate, which is the narrow gate, the turnstile of Him, the turnstile of the resurrection, the turnstile of the Good Friday cross. The uniqueness of the way that he presents is a way that leads us to a road that is filled with life and meaning and purpose. And all of that, I think, creates for us and for you and me and we together as people who are convicted about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, some particular crises in the world in which you are invited to be Christian believers However long that might be. Now let's come out of the Sermon on the Mount and into the world in which we live, because the world in which you and I live today, and in the civic reality, Provost, that you operate in, in the context of North Lanarkshire, and in everything that is our lives together as people who are employed or retired, whoever we are, we find ourselves in the context of a British moment where religious pluralism is imposing itself now within legislation, for the experience of the Christian church to be somewhat nerved or made nervous by the whole claim of that which is religious pluralism, or is religious pluralism. Well, it simply is that there is no one way or no one religious way with which we can claim any kind of uniqueness Pluralism says there is no one way which is better than others for humans to live and flourish. And religious pluralism is, in our experience of North Europe, moving fast within civic governance in a way that seeks to neutralize the uniqueness out of the church in which you find yourself seated today. Now, let me say this lovingly, but let me say this firmly. If, as Christian believers, we are people who, in the context of being salt and light this time tomorrow, wherever we are, the one thing that you cannot say, says your employer, for example, is that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. In fact, if some legislature makes its way through the upper house at the moment, soon hate speech will include John 14, verse 6. And this brings me to the wonderful moment I remember having here as a young new minister with Ian Bremner and Anne Cleland. I remember they wanted to check out how Baptist I was, since they'd heard that the vacancy committee had begun to talk. And I remember them saying, do you believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God? Uh-huh, yeah. Do you believe that Jesus is really unique and He's the only? yeah, I believe that, Anne. And I remember that whole moment of being aware that they were really interested to find out what I believed because I knew without a doubt what they believed as a generation for whom had lived through the war, a generation for whom they'd carried the faith throughout the decades of their lives and into this new place of the future and all of the heady challenges of the 90s makes the new millennium look a bit stupid. But the thing that you dare not say today that Jesus Christ invites us to get good with is the fact that Jesus is the only way to God. Because hear me on this. The reason why you are here for 175 years is not because this space and this pulpit has been mealy-mouthed when it's come to the whole issue of what it means to know God. And so the reality of your mind, if it's gone to where my mind has gone, is to this place. To the next slide, to the next question, which is, well, if that be true, if Jesus is the only way to God, let's go to the slide, then what about everyone and everything else? And this is where I see the most sense of nervousness in our own situation in Newton manns people who literally help, as you do, to make society and community function nine to five most days of the week. What does the Christian think? What does a believer think in the context of that question that you are often presented with, which is that Jesus is just one amongst many, and that actually, you're better just to keep your mouth shut at work because, well, you don't want to fall on the wrong side of some kind of equality law. And I want to just say to you that there is a way to subvert the law, as there has been since the day of the resurrection and that is that Jesus Christ makes people subversively attractive when we believe that He is the only way to God. You see, one of the things that happens in the context of the Christian gospel is the one thing that can only happen because of the Christian gospel, and it's this. When I went to Newton-Marins, I was invited to be involved in a high school debate with a Muslim Iman, with a Jewish rabbi, and with a person from the Secular Society of Scotland. And at the end of the event, one of the high schoolers asked uh, the Muslim Imam if he had any nervousness around his faith claims. And he was incredibly honest to say, well, I do, and this is it. And my subtle sense of worry is that if what Reverend Morris says is true, we're all kind of gubbed. And I remember thinking in that very moment that, yep, the Jewish guy and the Muslim guy recognized that in their traditions, their traditions have prophets who come to help us to find God. Only in the gospel, only in Christianity, do you have God saying in Jesus, I am God, come to find you. Now, this is already making some of you feel really uncomfortable because the dynamic of this in the Bible means for you in your life, some real moments that you need to negotiate about the person of Jesus Christ. And the wish that I have for you and the time left for us today is to ask you the real question about what do you think about Jesus Christ? Because if sharing your faith in the context of a secular or multi faith type thing freaks you out and you just don't do it, I suggest to you that you've never truly believed in Jesus Christ who one day said this. Jesus once said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, that is either a fact or it is not a fact. And the fact of his word, the fact of his person, the fact that he said, before Abraham was, I am, the fact that he says to all of those people who hear him in the setting of the Gospels that, look, I've been sending you prophets for hundreds of years, and you've just been killing them. You see, Muhammad never saw Satan fall like lightning. The Jews still wait for something to happen that says Messiah has yet to come three weeks ago, I came out of the gents' toilet in our church and was aware that in the context of the art group, there's at least ten Jewish people there. And crossing the vestibule of our church in Newton Barnes, this woman came up to me and she said, are you the minister? Yeah, I'm the minister. She says, I'm still waiting for Jesus, unashamedly in the context of a Christian church, just being very open about the fact that she thinks I'm an idiot. (laughs) Some of you think that more than others. But here is the beauty. Here is the wonder. What Jesus said about himself is not optional for any of us. There's nothing optional about the fact that Jesus Christ is God. And here's the thing about Jesus' existence. Let's just go back a slide, because if we go back a slide, the fact of his being is this. A fact cannot be narrow. Think about that his deity, his wonder, his power, his redemption, his cross, his resurrection, the bodily resurrection again from the dead, the factual reality of who Jesus Christ has been over these 18 decades to this church. The Christian church is not narrow. Christians are narrow. Christ is not narrow. A fact can be many things. It's just a fact that if I don't drink for a month, at the end of the month I'll be dead. I don't eat for a week, I'll be ill. That's not narrow. A fact cannot be narrow. So, how do we, how might we hold the exclusive truth of the gospel? Next slide. And how do we get beyond that whole place of people thinking that Christians are bigoted, that in some way we are people, who are kind of deluded. Well, herein lies the beauty of who Jesus has been to this church for 175 years. You see, his humility wasn't evangelical humility. wasn't even Baptist humility. It was the humility of his father, Jesus, who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman who grew up in another place who worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he becomes this itinerant. He never wrote a book. He never held high office. He never had a family or owned a home. He never went to university. He'd never really gone to a big city until the last fortnight of his life. He'd never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials apart from himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies, and he went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to the cross, and he dies between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments. The only property he had on earth seems to be a cloak. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave, and through the pity of a friend, at that. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. All the armies, one person once said, that have ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as one solitary life. So, how do Christians live with exclusive truth? How do we live with the exclusive truth that if you die without Christ, you are lost? How do you live with the exclusive truth of if you're a disciple, you have renounced everything for the sake of following Him? Well, we live in the way He lived, and we live with a kind of humility that is a giving humility, a humility that pours ourselves out at the feet of God, that doesn't need to shout to be heard, but so much lives in a way that is seen. I'm glad that none of you asked me to share any memories today, because most of the memories that I hold dear from here are of people who just gave themselves for the sake of the gospel who gave their homes, who gave their marriages, who gave their money, who gave their time, who gave, and they would never be platform people, but they are gospel people. You know, Georgie, I don't know if we'll be here for the 200th, but if we are, and if the church is here, it's because it's accepted that in this new multicultural, politically correct society that we found a new and humble way to be exclusive. And the beauty of the exclusive truth of Jesus is that you need to count yourself out, because how He died invites each and every one to come to him and place our faith in Him. And if you are here today and your faith is wobbling and you're uncertain and you're unsure, allow the voice of what Jesus said when the 72 comes back, when they think it's great that demons submit to His name, when He said, Luke, I saw Satan fall. Do we really know who is in our midst today? Because if we did, we'd embrace the possibility of everything that would be the possibility of the future made bright by the person of God incarnate. We are literally people who have experienced the mercy and the grace of God. And that is a very beautiful and wonderful thing. But the responsibility of worshiping someone who said they saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven has only truly been believed when we humble ourselves in the way that we saw Jesus humble himself. And that, I suggest might keep us all going that bit longer. And for some people here today for whom you're unconvinced and you're not a Christian, well, if you find that in the project of trying to save yourself, as John Richmond once did, then the message of the gospel is for you today to come to Christ and to find that when you become convinced that you cannot save yourself, that there is a Savior who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who invites you to know Him, and to love Him, because one day, because of that, you'll be with Him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You for the blessing of Your Word to our hearts. We praise You for the humility that we see in Jesus Christ and the beauty of how we too can live in the light of His gospel. Bless us and open us, we pray, to the wonder of Your truth, and make us to know that Jesus' name is the name high over all, that there is no name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So maybe for someone who's here today, unsaved, uncertain, make them to feel the turnstile text that moves them from earth to heaven, from unbelief to faith, from blindness to sight. For this we pray, for the glory of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior.